There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to the Heredity Podcast. This month, experimental evolution meets next generation sequencing and the latest efforts to conserve the Cuban crocodile. And we'll start with Cuban crocodile conservation. Zapata Swamp hosts Cuba's own endemic crocodile species, Crocodilus rumbifer. Sadly, this beautiful reptile is listed as critically endangered because of illegal hunting, habitat modification and a small population size. Another problem is that it shares Zapata Swamp with the much more abundant American crocodile and there's evidence of hybridisation between the two species. Hybridisation is a key issue in conservation. It's important for management practices to minimise human-caused hybridisation, especially when one species is much rarer than the other. Several decades ago, a breeding programme was set up in Zabata Swamp in order to maintain the genetic identity of the Cuban crocodile, but until this point, they've lacked enough genetic information to properly inform their conservation strategies. Yoamel Milian Garcia belongs to the Faculty of Biology at the University of Havana and has been gathering genetic information from Zabata Swamp in order to assess how much hybridization is going on in both the wild and in captivity and to get an idea of the captive population's genetic health. Here he is. The genus Crocodilus comprises 12 or 13 species, recognized species, and in Cuba we have two of those species. We have one of them endemic of Cuba, so that is the Cuban crocodile, and the scientific name is Crocodilus rombifer, and the most important white population for the species is in Zapata Swamp. And we have the other species that has a broad distribution. The common name is American crocodile. The distribution range reaches from the South Florida to including Central America, until the north of South America, including the Caribbean. So in Cuba, it's very well represented around the Cuban archipelago. Okay, so you have the Cuban crocodile and the American crocodile coming together in this Zapata swamp. Um, and the Cuban crocodile is critically endangered. Exactly. The Cuban crocodile is considered critically endangered. Um, yeah, and they overlap their range in this area. They have been hybridizing. That was one of our main focus in this study, to quantify this degree of hybridization using genetic markers. And before your study, was there any evidence that they were hybridizing? In Cuba, we have farms, and researchers were finding individuals with intermediate morphological characters, or just a mix of the morphological characters considered diagnostic one for American or Cuban crocodiles. So they were considered hybrids. For example, the farm that we studied at Sabata Swan was funded at the beginning with individuals of both species because this hybridization process was not very well known. And they noticed that in the farm they cross and they produce uh, individuals that also were fertile. So 
and they reproduced them. So they were breeding uh, these hybrids for some years in the farms since they founded. And when you say farm, is this part of a captive breeding program? Exactly, exactly, yeah. And so what kind of genetic data were you looking for then in this study? Well, at the beginning, we were trying to find genetic markers that were uh, useful to distinguish the hybrid from the non-hybrid individuals. So we were using microsatellite markers, basically, and also mitochondrial DNA to determine the direction of this hybridization due to the maternal inheritance of this marker. And you were getting this genetic information for these captive animals and for the wild animals? Exactly, yeah. Okay, so let's hear about the results then. How much interspecific breeding was going on? Yeah, in the wild it was around 49.1% and in captivity 16.1%. That is considered very high, so especially yeah, in the in the wild. Is this because of some kind of human interaction? Why have they suddenly been brought together? You know, wh- why are there still two species if there's half of them are interbreeding? Why is, have they not sort of become one species? Yeah, well, that's one of the interesting questions that we are trying also to answer. What we are trying to know is if that hybridization is natural or not. And what we have been thinking is that it's combined. So we have a natural process that is also enhanced by anthropogenic pressures. But what we have been seeing today is something that is part also of the evolutionary process. In the case of the wild, that's uh, our opinion. And in the case of the um, in captivity, it's just anthropogenic hybridization. So, and that was not desirable because when the captive breeding program was funded, it was created for preserving a species that also was considered endemic. So when they put the individual together and was, well, there was not a lot of information about this hybridization process, at some point they decide, well, we want to keep just the Q1 crocodile, so we need to remove the hybrids and we need to remove the American crocodiles that we already have now in the captive breeding program. But it was really hard then to distinguish the animals, and for that reason we were trying to use the molecular markers that were proved in order study to be useful for these purposes. And in terms of the pure Cuban crocodile specimens that you have in these captive breeding programs, what's the genetic health of those populations? Yeah, we compared the genetic variability of the captive populations to the wild population, and they were similar. They were quite similar. Also, we determined the degree of of relatedness among breeders in the captive population, and we identified 37 genetically important individuals that possess individual minking chip values lower than the population minking chip. And those individuals can be used in terms of managing for producing or for keeping the breeds and for prospective first uh, breeds. Okay, so these individuals with the lower mean kinship than the average in the wild will be important just to maintain those those rare alleles. Yeah, and for yeah, and for increasing the genetic variability during crossing among individuals. Now that you have all this genetic information about the Cuban crocodile, are you more confident about their long-term conservation management? Well, Yes, we are now for first time for the Q1 crocodiles and for this captive breeding program putting genetic information into the system just to be taken into account for 
propose management uh, plans as how ca- what kind of individuals we could cross to keep this genetic variability and to keep the several parameters in terms of genetics that was not possible before because just we don't we didn't have that uh, genetic information so we are uh, happy with the result and to come with this information to put it together with everything else that is is now a regular basis in other captive breeding programs. That was Yoamel Milian Garcia. The next story this week is about a review published in Heredity about the newest trend in experimental evolution, a technique called evolve and resequence. Until now, researchers performing experimental evolution studies have focused on the phenotypic responses to the selective regimes they impose on their subjects, usually Drosophila. Sometimes they'll then relate those to some associated markers. But now with more affordable sequencing technologies, they're able to investigate the responses of entire genomes to specific regimes. And to do this at several time points throughout the experiment, allowing them to track an allele's trajectory throughout the process. It's a major avenue to understanding what's actually happening in evolving natural populations. Now that several such studies have been performed and the strengths and difficulties of the technique are becoming apparent, Christian Schlutterer at the Institute of Population Genetics at the Veterinary Medicine University in Vienna and his team have written a review for heredity. I started off by asking him for a bit of context on the history of experimental evolution. Experimental evolution in fruit flies dates back almost 100 years. So people have been exposing Drosophila populations to various selective agents. And it has been known that they quickly respond. But only something like five years or so, we have the technologies in hand that we can do a genome-wide assay on all the variants in the genome, how they're changing along with the observed phenotypic changes, and then trying to link these changes in the genome to the phenotypic changes or fitness changes that we are seeing. We have written the review at this time right now because we think now we have enough studies that we understand what is the power of it, what are the limitations, and we say that we have to be a bit careful how we interpret the data, etc. So I think this was exactly the reason We have several studies. We can basically say, well, what have you achieved and what are the challenges that lay ahead of us? Okay, so how exactly does this technique evolve and resequence actually work? Well, the idea is basically that you have a population evolving in the lab and then after some generations of evolution in the lab, you basically take a snapshot of the population, maybe at the beginning, and after, say, 50 generations, you sequence the population again, and then you have a genome-wide allele frequency estimate through the sequencing of pools of individuals, and then you can compare generation zero to generation 50, and you ask, where in a genome do we see massive changes in allele frequencies? And these massive changes in allele frequencies are then indicative of a genomic region that has been subjected to selection. The nice thing there is that you have an adaptive phenotype. That's what evolutionary biologists are very interested in, because you can do QTL mapping on any trait, but you don't know how this has been linked to fitness. And here you would basically get a region where you know that this is adaptive under these lab conditions. Of course, the string attached to this is it's lab conditions and not nature, but I think it's still better than nothing. And has this just become possible now because of the falling cost of sequencing technologies? 
Well, I think yes, because experimental evolution studies are quite old. And so you basically can distinguish between two classes, those ones that have been done basically in bacteria, where you start from a completely genetically identical founder and then acquire new mutations. And then the other ones that, that we are mainly describing in this review is basically where you start from a polymorphic population and you have only a few generations at a relatively small population size, and you basically take advantage of already existing variation that helps these evolving populations to adapt to a new environment. And, and these approaches have been done before, and people were recognizing that you can get a very fast phenotypic response within 15 generations. You see massive phenotypic differences. But to link this to the genotypes, this has only been possible with the next generation sequencing technology. And there also, I think still despite this, is, has become substantially cheaper. This is only possible through a combination of this pool-seq technology that allows you to sequence many individuals at once. And therefore, it's more cost-effective than the classic sequencing of individuals. And with this, you get a genome-wide, basically, estimate of allele frequencies. And if you compare two time points of allele frequency changes, um, that you can really ask where in the genome is the action. And just explain a bit more, then, about what PoolSeq actually is. How does that work? Well, PoolSeq comes from sequencing of pooled individuals. This is basically you either combine DNA from different individuals or you like it with fruit flies that are so tiny you just throw a couple of flies into the tube, mash them up and extract DNA. And then you have the DNA not from a single individual but maybe hundreds of individuals. And so you have a mixture and the idea is that every individual contributes the same amount of DNA. And then if you do sequencing of this mixture of DNA, then you get a population estimate of the allele frequencies that you have at each locus in the genome. And you can track the dynamics of an allele across time in these experiments, can't you? Yes, that's actually very true. So by basically following the frequency changes over time, you get exactly the trajectories that you would not be able to in nature. And we have in my group some very surprising results where we see that alleles that are basically shooting up very early on, and then they stop basically increasing frequency, whereas a simple-minded model would have assumed that basically a selected allele increases in frequency until it becomes fixed. So this indicates that having the trajectory information is something very, very important and provides quite a bit of insight. So what sort of questions have previous ENR studies addressed? Well, some of the papers were addressing basically phenotypic traits like body size, some of them were looking at aging, we had thermal stress resistance, we had resistance against the virus, so it was a broad spectrum. And have these been successful in identifying the genes behind complex traits? I would highlight one study that has been done on a Drosophila C virus for systems where experimental evolution has really pinpointed a few genomic regions that are subjected to selection and one of these regions has been independently detected with a GWAS study. So I think this really shows the power of this method and that you can get quite consistent results. On the other hand, traits that have been looked at in many of these studies are traits that people have been basically banging their heads against the wall for years because these are very complex traits. 
and therefore the results are more challenging to interpret for these traits than what we see for simple traits like Drosophila C-virus resistance. So tell me some of the ways you suggest in your review then that we maximize the power of this technique to link genes with complex phenotypes. We think there are a few major things that are important to be considered. One is the number of starting chromosomes in your experiment. And the other thing is the effective population size in your experiment. And lastly, the number of replicates. So in principle, the answer is very, you always like to go for the maximum possible. As many as possible replicates, largest population size that you can afford, and the largest number of starting chromosomes. If you combine these things, the experiments become really powerful. And what we have to see in future, what is actually manageable and what can we basically do? Other than just assigning a genotype to a specific phenotype, what other kinds of experiments do you envisage ENR being used for in the future? Looking at the trajectories of selected alleles, this is a piece of information we are lacking in the analysis of natural populations. But it will be instrumental, I think, to understand, for example, if you, you want to understand whether you have, say, a simple trait, <clears throat> a simple architecture, or you have a complex trait to which many loci are contributing. So if you have a one trait, one locus um, relationship, this is quite simple, and we have a good understanding of this. For quantitative traits, where several loci are contributing to it, we, we have a lot of theory, but it's very, very difficult to, to track these signatures in natural populations. And I think experimental evolution may be the missing link to this, because here you can take advantage of the trajectories and ask, well, is the trajectory of a given allele compatible with the idea that this is a quantitative trait locus? This means that it's one of many loci contributing to the trait. And these Loci have different predictions than the single locus traits um, in, in the evolving populations. That was Christian Schlutterer. And that's all we have time for. Please do tune in again next month for another edition of the Heredity Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 